Hey, Brock, how are you? Doing well, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm just uh, shopping some Thursday boots after your video this week. Ah, yeah, Thursday boots. Wait, do you have any? No, I've always looked at them because I know you're a big fan, but uh, I've always wanted to pull the trigger, and I've also always wanted to pull the trigger on some Chelsea boots, and so now I have no excuse because two two birds, one stone here. Yeah, I, I... They're great boots. I mean, especially for the price. I've definitely had, like I said in the, uh, one of my videos about that, I've, I've definitely had like more expensive boots that weren't as comfortable. Basically, looks the same. So I like them. I think the one thing with with the Chelsea is it kind of depends like how dressy you want to go. Because if, if you want a dressier Chelsea, you might want to look at a different brand. I think they're they're just kind of casual. But I wear them all the time. No, I think I would do more casual because I'd wear them with chinos. I'd wear them with jeans. Uh, I don't really go too too formal with a lot of my clothes, especially the professional work environment has been so casualized that you know, you know, I look dressed up just wearing my, my Ministry of Supply blazer. Yeah, I, I remember you saying that in your video, and I was actually kind of surprised because I assumed that your office environment was like everybody's in a suit and tie every day. No, I am the odd man out for that. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's kind of how I am, like pretty casual. So when I was, I know some people, like I had some people commenting saying like I would go for like a Allen Edmonds or Crockett and Jones or like a, a different Chelsea. But I mean, I've worn Chelsea's with boots or with uh, suits before, but I just don't wear suits very often. And when I do, I'm probably gonna wear an Oxford. So yeah, I don't, I, I kind of like the casual Chelsea. So wait, your office dress code isn't suit and tie either? Mine's more like a t-shirt and optional pants. The Modest Man headquarters <laughs> is is really casual. Yeah, just know that there's a reason I'm sitting down in the videos. <laughs> yeah, I think people would be surprised how many times I'm also not wearing any pants. <laughs> yeah. yeah man. Sometimes when I do my walk-off at the end, I have to cut it off because you can see that I'm not wearing pants. So. Yeah, do some masking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's good. I mean, fall is, has always been one of my favorite times of the year, and it's like – it's it's wool sweaters. It's the cashmere. It's I love the like the burgundies. I like the hues. It's just not not even just from a weather standpoint. Like what you used to get in D.C. I don't know what it's like now in Arizona, but when the air gets crispier and you just want to wear more layers, that's my favorite. Yeah, there, there's something intangible about it. I don't I don't know what it is, but even the past, it's still pretty warm here, but. Even the past few days, like the light quality is different in the morning. You know, it's just there's something that makes it feel like fall. And I, I personally, I'm with you. I love it. You know, I, I love that the transitional seasons, especially fall. I know some people don't like that. They get like all all weird, you know, during the transition seasons. But I love it. And, and yeah, the textures and the colors and the fact that you can wear layers without overheating, just pretty much everything about it. I think it's the best season for for menswear. Yeah, my go-to in the fall is. I have olive chinos from Bonobos and then either like a, a burgundy wool sweater or something like to me, that's just the perfect combination. Yeah. Oh yeah. Olive chinos are like perfect for fall. And, and then like the, uh, kind of like the acorn color chinos too. So like, I feel like summer is, is good for that. Like really light khaki color, but then in fall you can get like the medium browns and, uh, you know, the burgundies and oranges and yellows and, red and a lot of options do you have cashmere sweaters i feel like i never hear you talk about certain materials and cashmere might be one of them 
I actually don't have any. Actually, yeah, I, know, I, I do have one uh, cashmere sweater, like like pure. Um, but I I do have a lot of merino wool V-neck sweaters that those are kind of my go-to, um, you know, to wear over button-up shirts, and a couple of cotton crew necks that you know just to wear over a like a t-shirt or as their own layer. So, but I, I think I think what a lot of guys are missing is the are those middle layers, you know quarter zips and the lightweight vests and the stuff that you can, that's kind of interchangeable that you can go under the lightweight jacket, but over your sweater. Yeah. See, that's where my strongest point is. I'm lacking the outer shells, like the top layers. Like I think you have a strong jacket game to me. Like my sweater collection is fleshed out fully, but now I need to go into the jacket area. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, what do you, are you, are you also usually going pretty casual with the, uh, with the outerwear too then? Like, not top coats, but like more parkas. I actually just ordered a top coat from Oliver Wicks. They started to do ready-to-wear uh, garments, and so I ordered one of their wool cashmere top coats, which I should be here on Friday. I'm like really excited to wear that. I do have like a bomber that I wear, and I've got um, I've got some like lighter jackets, but that's definitely the one part of my collection that I've held off getting anything because I didn't want to buy like a seventy dollar coat. I want to like wait and get a really nice one, like this Oliver Wicks one. Nice. So that that ready to wear is that totally off the rack, or do they do you customize anything like the sleeve length or any of the details? So it is totally off the rack. They have a huge range of sizes. So they have like a thirty six small and like I ordered a 40 regular, but then they give you a fifty dollar credit to go get alterations if you need to get it tailored. Okay. Okay. Cool. Oh, I'm gonna have to do that. Yeah, I, I have a couple of top coats from Banana Republic that are really nice, actually, nice and slim fit. But I did have to get the sleeves shortened, and they had buttons, so it was kind of a a messy alteration. Mm. Yeah, that happened on my black lapel jacket. Is they couldn't adjust it because of the buttons. They would have had to adjust it at the shoulder, so black lapel had to remake my whole suit. Yeah. It's funny. I, I feel like most tailors will not do that. They, they won't shorten it from the shoulder, uh, even though you kind of that's kind of the traditional advice that you hear on the internet is like, well, you can always get it shorter from the shoulder. But most tailors I've met don't want to do that. Yeah, I think it opens you up to a, a whole slew of problems. My my tailor wouldn't do it because so she worked the tailor that I go to. She just does it out of her house, but she was a men's warehouse tailor for thirty years, and she said that when she, by the measurements that she did she would have to pull it up so much that it would start to pinch the material because of the form of the shoulder and because of the way that the arm was connected, that there wouldn't be enough, like it would end up creasing. And so that's why she wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. She actually had it opened up and like showed me why she couldn't do it when I came over. And so it was cool to see the inner workings of the suit though. Yeah, it's complicated. Actually, I just saw, I don't know if you saw this, but, um, BuzzFeed did a uh, uh, like a expensive suit versus you know they have that worth it series on YouTube. I actually like, I almost sent it to you, but I thought you might see it too. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, it's crazy because I, I got I got an email from I'm on the Articles of Style email list, and I got an email from them, and and then it was like number two on trending on YouTube. It was like wow, that's crazy. Like they must be getting insane amounts of traffic right now. Um, but that was kind of cool to see those guys on on BuzzFeed, you know, and then also see the experience. Yeah. And I think their conclusion is so spot on too. Like they both liked the way they felt in the suit supply suits and they looked good in the suit supply suits. But when they got into the, like when, when 
I can't remember what his friend's name was. Uh, not not the BuzzFeed guy, but the friend. Uh, he like he loved the way he fit in the articles of style suit, and then even um, the main guy. You know, he picked the the most expensive one. But it is true. I mean, you get you get what you pay for, and it's. I, and you had mentioned in a recent video too is buy the best that you can because you're gonna be you're gonna be more satisfied with it. Like everybody can buy a three ninety nine suit, but there's a reason that people buy a thousand twelve hundred dollars suit too. Right. Yeah. Obviously, there's there's definitely some diminishing returns once you get to the higher ends. And I'm wondering, because I think the articles of style, like they're those guys, their their bet, I guess, or their theory is that basically they're they're kind of bridging that gap between like online made to measure, which is hit or miss, and true bespoke. Um, they're kind of doing something in between. And so I guess the the real question is, is it worth? Is is there so little of a difference between going with something like them for say fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars compared to Full bespoke for several thousand dollars. Is it is it worth it? You know that that extra couple thousand dollars. Which I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But it seems like people so far who have used articles of style uh, are pretty happy. Sounds like a question that the Cavalier needs to answer. That would be a good video. Yeah, that that actually you should do a video on the whole online made to measure like revolution and just see like if it really has been like net positive or like, cause you know, like Indochino is basically like a mall brand now. So I don't know, that'd, that'd be an interesting industry video. I have done a lot of research as I've talked to these other brands as to why it's happening and what's happening. So I'm like half of the way there on the raw information I would need for that video, but I'll keep going. I might, I might order something from articles of style because I just got a suit from Lignetti and I chose a wool silk, 75% wool, 25% silk, and it cost $1,050. And so it's you're basically in that space, but the suit fit amazing. Actually, the video will be up by the time that this episode airs. And uh, I'm really impressed with the fit. I'm impressed with the process. And then and they're saying is Italians do fit better. And so uh, I, I would like to check out articles of style. What, what was the uh, the process for that suit? Was that traditional made-to-measure or were you measured in person? They say on their site bespoke made-to-measure suits. I think they have more of a bespoke process than just picking the 40 and making some alterations. And I think that's why it did fit so well. And so I'd have to, I'd have to get a little bit more information on why that's exactly the case. But they also use very specific traditional woolen manufacturers in Italy. And so they have uh, much higher quality materials than you'd get from Indochino. But yeah, it's a fascinating yeah, space. Uh, yeah, it really is. There's, there's still, and it's crazy because to us being kind of in the industry, we, you kind of assume everybody knows about it, but I think the vast majority of men have, have no idea that online made to measure is a thing. Yeah. Well, and, and like men's warehouse is getting into it. Brooks brothers has an offering. So it's starting to get out there. And uh, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've been meaning to check out, the Brooks Brothers one as well, but you got a sneak preview. By the time this podcast goes up, you'll will have posted my um, my office style video. We can wrap we can wrap with this. I'm, I'm thinking about doing some more in that series of like video essays that takes the style of media because I love television and I love movies. I'd I'd love to do more of that kind of breakdown, but it just takes a lot of time. Yeah, that yeah I did get a little preview of it, and uh, that just it it looked like it took forever, which obviously it's, it's, it's a little rough, you know, for you, but, but I think, I think anybody watching it will get that impression. So, you know, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's the same, 
it's the same, uh, I guess, vibe you get from channels like Nerd Writer. You know, it just seems like, I don't know, well done. Yeah, it took. So I, I did time tracking just so I can understand it, and it took me 15 and a half hours of work for that video. And I know the show so well already, so there's there's that curve built into it. Like if I did a show like Suits, I don't really watch Suits, but if I wanted to do a video on the show Suits, I'd probably take a little bit more time because I'd have to dive deeper into the shows and understand a little bit more. So yeah, it better be a big video. That's that's the thing with YouTube. It's like yeah, or just being a content creator in general, you know, you can spend forever on something and you have no idea if anybody's gonna watch it. And I feel like half the time it's there's like a a good bit of chance in there, you know, just if YouTube happens to promote it or when you upload it or whatever, it can it can be a great video. It doesn't guarantee anything. But it's still so random, man. Like my my last uh, the second to last video, uh, it was six expensive products that are worth the money. That one, you know, got five, six, seven times as many views as most of my videos do in the first couple days. And I have no idea why. I did every, everything was the same, same exact format, um, same upload time roughly, you know, promoted to my email list. And for some reason, it just kind of took off. Hmm. Yeah, I might monetize that video. But I'm also wondering too, if I, if this doesn't get me any sort of copyright infringement, then I might keep considering doing something like this more often. But if I post it and it gets pulled down because I'm using a bunch of content from the office, I don't even know. Well, is that why, I mean, some of the channels, like does Nerdwriter monetize or he doesn't monetize? Oh, he, oh, he does. Patreon? He does monetize? Okay. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that works. I guess yeah, I'll... You should monetize. I mean, because I don't think there's any downside to monetizing. You know, like most people either just skip the ad or they have ad blocker on. I, I don't think anybody like doesn't watch a video because it's monetized. That's why I never did it is I never wanted a barrier. But I think you're right. I think a lot of people just accept that there's ads. Actually, you might start seeing in your ad since I signed up for YouTube Red now. So you might be getting some some of my YouTube Red money. Is that a whole different app or, or is that just opens up different functionality within YouTube? No, you just pay. It's $10 a month to YouTube. You just use your own account. But then what it does is it eliminates ads. So I, I figured because I watch so much YouTube, I just it's it's worth it. And so you never see an ad. But then also, like on the mobile app, you can do background. You can do offline downloading. So you can download YouTube videos for offline watching. And you can do background audio. So if you start a video on your phone and you go off and do something else, the audio will keep playing. So there's like the two primary features on the phone, but then you don't get any ads anymore. That the background playing, I think is worth it. Actually, that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah, for me, it's the offline use because uh, I, I do end up watching a lot of stuff on my iPad, and I can save it now for when I'm on a plane, and that's huge for me. Mm-hmm. So that's my, my exciting week: working on my office video, YouTube Red, and uh, thinking about fall style. Nice, big week. Big, big week, and. <laughs> And going to see the Kingsman, but I'm going to see the Kingsman tomorrow. So by the time this goes up, I'll have seen the Kingsman. Ah, uh, yeah, it's tomorrow. I'm gonna have to go see that. I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think Becca will see that with me. I have to find somebody else. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get invited to the red carpet like I was hoping, but uh, maybe Kingsman three. I'll be big enough. Yeah, we got we got to start laying the groundwork now for Kingsman three. I know. So today we'll throw it over to Christian at Theo and Harris. This is our second uh, watch-related YouTube channel because 
uh, we've both become totally obsessed with it in the past few months uh, in parallel. And so we'll go over and talk to Christian of Theo and Harris. Christian, welcome to the Buttoned Up Podcast. What's going on, man? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I think it was like your very first video, you had a self-described grandpa style. And so I was wondering, uh, we could just we just talk about your style for a second before we get into the rest of your history. Yeah, I mean, you know, like just like everybody else, I mean, my style has totally evolved. Uh, you know, I'm not that old; I'm only 22 years old, right? So I think I've had a you know, quote unquote, style or the beginning of your style evolution, no matter how douchey that might sound. Probably started when I was, I don't know, like like 12 or something, right? And I remember, I remember Christmas Eve was probably one of like my favorite like style days, right? It was my family got together, you know, and everyone like really, really dressed, you know, Christmas Eve was like, if you wore jeans, like this was like sacrilege, you know what I mean? Like you ate fish and you wore tassel loafers, you know? And I remember thinking that was like the most, you know, uh, old man, like ridiculous out of style thing ever. Right. Uh, and then I, it kind of, it kind of, kind of dropped it for a long time. And then I remember kind of being on Instagram years later and starting to see guys like Alessandro Squarzi or, or, you know, uh, Lapuelcan or Lino Aluzzi or whoever the hell yeah, these Italian guys might be. And I was like, oh, wait, like you can actually make, you know, anything, including and specifically grandpa style tassel loafers, you know, uh, kind of like farty Oxford or trad shirts, uh, anything look really, really good. Uh, and I found it like immediately interesting, you know, turning otherwise kind of like, I don't know, boring or farty or, or just quote unquote, like old man stuff and making it like interesting and attractive. And that's kind of been my thing ever since. Yeah, I love that most of your colors, you, you wear a lot of colors, but then you also have like rugby or football shirts and it just, it looks so natural. Yeah, I mean, my style like definitely, definitely is natural. You know, I go to you know like some events sometimes, really more so out of just you know fun and friends. Like uh, with this guy uh, Salva Salva Ambro uh, Ambrosino on on Instagram, and uh, he he invites me to these you know like real serious like Italian style events. And these guys have serious, serious you know style. I mean, like like crazy stuff. I mean, uh, beyond my wildest you know kind of imagination, right? Uh, and and that's wonderful. But I'm I'm very comfortable kind of you know being where I am because it is a comfortable look it's something that I can wear every day and you know I'm not really trying to impress anyone but it's it's fun you know yeah I know so so where did you grow up where'd you start uh, I'm, I'm interested in getting some more of your background because I can I can hear your Italian heritage and you, you mentioned in a lot of your videos too what do you mean like the fish that gave it away the fish <laughs> on the... <laughs> uh, well, I think yeah. it's so it's um it's very un-american to be able to uh, have the the dialect or the accent when saying the names like that, I've noticed that more and more as I've traveled to Europe, and so yep. that's a that's a very easy giveaway. Yeah, I, I uh, so so I, I grew up in New Jersey, you know, literally born and bred in the, in the same you know same town. Uh, uh, my my mom's Italian, uh, my dad's Spanish. I spent a lot of time with my mom's family growing up, uh, so we you know, grew up very very much so uh, Brooklyn. You know, my whole mom's family's from Brooklyn, so uh, you know, obviously spent a lot of time. You know, more specifically, like you know, blue collar. You know, that was really my upbringing. Uh, you know, my dad's a white collar guy, um, but the people, you know, the vast majority of the guys I spent my time around, all my uncles and all my cousins, you know, they were just wonderful, hardworking, well, sometimes hardworking, you know, blue collar people, right? So I think that even though I work in a much more so, you know, luxury, white collar, you know, white glove service, crazy expensive watches that, you know, have nothing to do with, you know, where I came from, uh, I handle it in the same way. Do you know what I mean? So I think that that kind of blue collar foundation uh, really has given me a tremendous respect for 
um, like when people are spending money as opposed to being desensitized. Uh, and I think that people really appreciate that. So that was kind of like how I grew up and, and how that affects uh, uh, me now in business today. Yeah, and I think it gives you a certain amount of self-drive and just self-motivation that you might have missed had you come up in a, in a different way. Totally. Yeah. You know, and, and don't get me wrong. We both know, I'm certainly not correcting him. We both know there are plenty of, you know, kids out there that grew up just, you know, crazy wealthy that totally respect money. I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, growing up, uh, you know, kind of in the way I did, um, you know, not that, not that anyone was underprivileged by any means, but it was, it was very, uh, kind of grounding once I, you know, started to see people you know, uh, spending ten, twenty thousand dollars on a Daytona, and then me saying, "Oh, okay, like that's a lot of money, sure, but you know, two grand's also a lot of money." Whereas a lot of people kind of say, "Oh, okay, you know, date just are cheap. Date just aren't cheap. Like five hundred dollars is a lot of money." Yeah, and it seemed to be some of the feedback. I watched your videos where you do like the best watch under best everyday watch under five grand. Then you did a, then you did a ten grand, a fifteen grand, and and I like that you referenced that right in the beginning of the video. Like, look. $10,000 isn't an obscene amount of money. And so like you have the perspective of saying, look, here's a great watch for $15,000, but understand that I, I know where this is coming from too. Exactly. Exactly. Which is super important. I think that one of the things that my dad always kind of said was, you know, and he didn't even know what I would kind of take it, what I would do with it when I was a kid, but he was, don't, don't, don't buy your own bullshit sometimes. Do you know what I mean? And I think that a lot of the people in, in this industry, in any luxury industry, they start to, they start to really buy their own bullshit. You know, they start to genuinely believe that, you know, uh, you know, $500 or $300 or $200, you know, is kind of like, meh. You know, whereas I'm like, no, that's ridiculous. If I'm listing a swatch for $150 that I think is cool and someone wants to ask me eight questions about it, like that's their right. You know, and I should respect that because frankly, if I put $150 in my pants and, and you know, I couldn't find it the next day, I'd be pissed off. You know, so just because it's in a different field, just because the same amount of money is in a different field and it seems dwarfed, doesn't mean the money's worth any less. So, uh, so I, I don't know. That's just that's something that's like I literally live with and 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 really try to stay true to every single day. So, was your dad then that got you into the watch world? Because he seems to know a lot now. And I, like, where did that start for you? Yeah, I think um, what got me into the watch world was when my mom gave my dad uh, a Rolex GMT for his 40th birthday. Uh, my dad grew up like super poor uh, in in a in a Brooklyn like basically ghetto in uh, in East New York. So anyone now out there, anyone out there who knows East New York, you know, knows that uh, if you see my dad now, you'd be like, yeah, that guy would get eaten up, you know, uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue. You know, he's that's uh, <laughs> very, very much so uh, not like fitting in there now. But so coming from coming from you know that kind of background, you know, cockroaches, the whole kind of spiel. Uh, Rolex obviously was the most you know prized possession anyone could possibly imagine. You know, I mean, the guy grew up in the, you know, born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s and 80s. I mean, really pick a different icon. Like, they pick another icon that is equal. You know, apart from the Testarossa, right? Like, what else competes with a Rolex? You know, that is like the, you know, symbol of, okay, you know, I've made it a little bit. So when he turned 40 and my mom gave him that watch, you know, he opened it and he saw the green box. And he was like, like his, like his stomach just dropped. And he's like, what? Like, like what, like, what is this? You know? And he started to like shake and like, he, he legitimately like, kind of, kind of cried a little bit. And like, my dad is not like this super, super emotional guy by any means. Like he's a wonderful dude, but he's not the guy that's going to, you know, be so, uh, uh, you know, open to you know, crying. Uh, and I was like, wait, 
that was kind of the moment it clicked. Like, okay, a watch is not just a material item. Like, a watch can mean something. And that was, like, the first spark for me that said, oh, okay, let me learn more about what watches can mean, you know? So then so he got his first at 40. When was your first Rolex? My first was at 17, I think. So we came from a little bit of a different, uh, you know, a little bit of a different background in that way. Yeah, I was 17. What I love to watch, I, was, I think I was telling you before, I love to watch the relationship with your dad when he comes on and does wine. And it seems like he, he encourages you a lot into this world. I mean, what was it like going from, you know, high school student into college? And I know you, you kind of skipped the law school thing to start this. So what was that like for, with him? Yeah, I, I, you know, I never, I never had a job growing up. A lot of my friends, you know, they worked at Dairy Queen and they worked here, they worked there, and my parents never, like, they were like, okay, do grades, right? Which is, which is fine for most of, you know, your life. But at a certain point, I think I was, I was eighteen or I was, I was like nineteen, I think. I'd never had a job before, you know. My mom was like, listen, you got to get a job. Like, if you're ever going to be a functioning, you know, member of society, like, you gotta, you gotta work a little bit. You know, grades aren't just like enough, right? So, uh, so I went and got a job at Lord and Taylor, and I worked there for probably about, I don't know, six to eight hours, and I was fired, or I was never called back. I was a little bit of both, and I obviously was not very good at this. You know, I, I did not want to ring people up. I, I wanted to sell things, but I had I wanted to you know sell you know suits and ties and things like that, but I never wanted to actually ring anybody up, and and that became it kind of came off as kind of elitist, I think, and it kind of came off as um, I don't know, just just. I don't know, hard to work with, obviously. So they figured me out pretty quick and they let me go. So I came home and I was like, Ma, I, I'm sorry, I just can't do this, right? I said, listen, if I can start my own company, would it like be cool? Like, would that count? Even though I won't make money for the first, you know, one, two, three months. I have no idea, but would that count? So she's like, listen, you got three months. Take a shot. And that was it. That's how I started Theo House. You had something else too. You had, uh, was it Lunch MD? I did. I did. I, yeah, my dad. My dad came to me one time and, and asked me to start a little company. I uh, said there was a little bit of a, a little bit of an opening here. It wasn't a full time job. It, it required probably about you know an hour a day. Uh, I actually did really really well at Lunch MD. Uh, I did way better at Lunch MD than I, than I did at Theo and Harris. And probably hour per hour, I still have like to date made more money at Lunch MD than I have at Theo and Harris. But yeah, I was just I was brokering lunches out, and that's kind of uh, I was being I was I served as an intermediary between uh, pharmaceutical reps that did not want to chase down Panera and sandwich shops um, and, and offices that they were, you know, having lunches sent to for time for doctors. So I, I like, became, I came to know, like, every security guard at every hospital in New York. Uh, like, I, if I went there right now, like, they would still, you know, be like, oh, yo, what's up, Christian, you know, uh, which is kind of like a funny, you know, little part of my life that I, I actually forget about quite often. But, uh, yeah, so I had LunchMD. I, I directed that company, um, I mean, basically alone with, with a little bit of help from, from a little partner. Uh, and then it went right into Theo Harris. Okay, I got it. What did you really model Theo and Harris after? Like, had you talked to other uh, watchmakers or authorized dealers? What, what was that inception for you? Really, no. I mean, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a although it doesn't seem like it because I'm pretty you know outgoing and outspoken now. I mean, I I do really keep to myself. I I really don't. Um, I really have almost a problem in 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 going to other people. Not because I don't want their advice. Uh, but because I almost feel like it's like kind of, a, kind of like a burden. So although it definitely would have helped in the beginning of Theo and Harris to ask other people, I didn't. Uh, I really started it blind. 
Uh, I started it with two two employees that still work, you know, with us today. That they're just still like, you know, major major core parts of this business. And uh, we basically just stole the concept from other companies, from other online watch retailers. Um, that's really it. I, I took the formula that existed in, in vintage watch retail, and you know, it took forever, but it, it, slowly I began to understand, you know, marketing a little bit more. Uh, and how to really take over market share, and that you know was really from Gary Vaynerchuk, and that's where I I, I took off. Yeah, because what's interesting to me is that you're you're part like media and you're part shop, and it seems like I mean you put a lot of time into you post videos every day now, and just the way that you've approached that is is very much of a of a new school, which I think has helped you to this point. Oh, totally. Without that, you know, without that, we're we just well, we just redid our website. But without our, you know, uh, content creation, we're just another, you know, we're just another online retail shop. I mean, we have a high quality as far as our watches, and they're very interesting. It's a great curation, but ultimately, I mean, that's not that's not what's going to make a successful company alone, or it's going to take decades. Um, we saw a massive opening in the market. You know, they were our competitors were making way too much money, uh, and they were way too satisfied where they were, and they totally underestimated. Even though most of them literally knew who I was as a friend, uh, or as you know, just some kid that, that was in the watch community on Instagram, uh, they just underestimated the TNH team completely. They were like, "Ah, oh, they're a bunch of nineteen-year-olds. Like, really, what the fuck are they gonna do?" Yeah, I don't know if I can curse here, but I just did. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. Uh, and uh, we're really, what is what are these nineteen-year-olds gonna do? Come on. And it took us it took us a good year to figure out our formula, but uh, but once we did, I mean, you know, we just we just opened this bitch, you know. So then you, if if you keep to yourself a lot, what made you put up? Because I, I just watched your first uh, Ask TNH, which you was the like, Apple Watch, the Hermes Apple Watch. Yes, yeah, I just watched that. So what made you think like I'm just gonna start posting on YouTube? Because I know I think you were on Instagram before that too. I was on Instagram before that. We were actually doing written content on Theo and Harris before that. So it was, it was Instagram, then it was written, and there was really nothing else. We, we really had no other ideas. And then one night, and I was a big Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk fan. I just hadn't actually done video yet. And I'm sitting actually exactly where I'm sitting right now. Um, and I was having a drink with my dad. It was probably, you know, 12, 1 in the morning. Uh, I don't know what we were drinking, but something good probably. And, you know, he looks at me and he's like, I don't understand why you're wasting your time. And I was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And he goes, we get it. Like, written content is cool, and, and, and I'm not saying get rid of it. But every minute that you're not spending creating digital content – mind you, my dad is not a marketer. My dad is not – he's not even self-proclaimed. Like, this is not his thing. But he just understood this easy, you know, layup fundamental truth that I wasn't seeing. He was like, you consume Gary every single day. Like, all you ever talk about is fucking Gary Vaynerchuk. Like, what made Wine Library successful? And I was like, well, video content, like consistent, you know, consistent, thoughtful, you know, you know video content that created depth with consumers. He goes, yeah, then why aren't you doing that? And I was like, all right, that's – okay, that's a good idea. And then we recorded our first video. Yeah, and even in that video, you mentioned Jean Rousseau. So did you start to think like, oh, I will do the watch thing. I will create my own straps. I'll do this video. What was the, what was that progression like? I 110% did not. Uh, we were just selling watches. Jean Rousseau was just a company that I really, really liked. And people don't even like believe that. I just have nothing to gain by lying about it. I mean, Jean Rousseau was a company that I bought my first, my first like uh, you know expensive watch strap from. And I just enjoyed the experience from beginning to end so much that uh, that I just couldn't help but to talk about them. And I talked about them for you know a year and change before I even really got to know them well. 
Uh, and I don't even, frankly, I don't even think knew I was talking about them. Like I didn't send them the clips. You know, they. Uh, I just eventually kind of went to them. We became friends, and uh, I said, you know, listen, how could we do a partnership? Like in what capacity? And they said, okay, well, you know, maybe we could do a strap with you. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Unfortunately, there were like these massive corporate restrictions that, you know, did not allow us to do a strap. We needed to fulfill these just disgusting orders that we could never actually move. Um, and then when we told them that there was just no way we could do it, uh, they made an exception. I mean, Generoso really made this happen for us. Uh, there is basically no reason, um, apart from, you know, their understanding now uh, of the importance of, of social media and the importance of making, you know, valuable connections on the internet, that we have this, we have this relationship. You know, we have an amazing relationship with probably one of the best, if not the best, strap manufacturers in the world. And that to me is just like a totally surreal, uh, it's not so much of an achievement, but just a surreal reality. Yeah, and I also like the way that you present, whether it's STNH or it's, it's some of the um, the rants that you do. But you talk about the information like you know it cold. That you don't have any uh, restrictions on feeling like you can't talk about something a certain way. You're, you have the knowledge of the industry and you're able to convey it in a very good way, which which to me is why the videos land so well and they've been well, so well received. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, we uh, we won't take money from from a watch company, and that's not that's not out of like you know moral high ground. Like I would take money from anyone tomorrow. Like that's as long, you know as long as they're not Nazis. Like I would I would take money from any you know watch company tomorrow. Um, but uh, but they wouldn't give us money because we're way too outspoken and we're way too uh, we're way too honest and we're not going to form our content around their agenda. So you know realistically, when we do take advertising, which is probably in the near future. We'll be better off taking it from Levi's, taking it from Warby Parker or J. Crew or or, or really anyone, uh, Bonobos, uh, just not a watch company. You know, they have no interest in our honesty. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's where I, I sit in that same space too. Is uh, I won't really I won't really go down the men's clothing area. I totally agree right. on like a car company or or something else of that nature. Totally, so. like BMW could sponsor you tomorrow. That would be that would be nice. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be very nice. So you have a small team that you like started with, and it's. I mean, I, I know that you interact with them even just on some of the live feeds. But do you do you fund the business through the watch sales, or are you starting to grow the content enough? Like, how do how do you approach it as a business now that you've got a small team and you're and you're looking to make some of those those growth? Yeah, we 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 get some revenue from from YouTube, but it's it's not necessarily significant. But uh, it does help every month. There's no doubt. But yeah, our our watch sales are really what funds you know funds the company and, and helps it move forward. We just hired. Uh, two more editors, uh, James and Bradley. Uh, these are just phenomenal guys, young young dudes. You know, I'm I'm really all about working with young people. Not that old people are bad. I love old people. You know, <laughs> but uh, but I just think that um, in the culture that we've kind of created so far, um, it's just conducive to young people that haven't proven themselves yet. You know, I'm really all I'm really really from personal experience, uh, very very interested in, in giving opportunity to people who you know. Like this is your first at bat. You know, I'm really much so about that. So we just hired these two guys. Uh, we're hiring another two people in the next month or two, hopefully. But uh, yeah, that's that's how we're that's how we're you know growing as a team. And then sourcing the watches too. I'm sure you've you've now made some great connections, and you're starting to have even more credibility when you want to meet with somebody. So, had, what was that? Was that a tough transition into breaking in and then starting to make those relationships? 
that was massive. I mean, you know, people, I don't think people realize, not that they should, people just don't realize, you know, what goes into sourcing watches. I mean, that's, that's really, I, I source watches every day. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, put it this way, like sourcing watches is one of the only things at TNH that like only one person does. Uh, and that's, that's me. I really, really enjoy it. Like I genuinely like, um, not just the negotiation part, that's not really the fun part, but the, the finding, the never knowing what's behind the next corner, you know, and knowing not often, but sometimes it's just something ridiculous. You know, that's just, that's a really, really exciting, you know, feeling. Uh, in the beginning, it was very hard. You know, we had, we, all we, all we could do really is just, you know, go to auctions sometimes, you know, search on eBay a little bit, like totally unscalable. Like it was, it was kind of a mess. Um, but as time has, you know, progressed, we'd be able, we've been able to make some, when I say some, I mean, you know, five terrific connections uh, with with people like wholesalers that uh, that that would rather you know sell to us than than to retail because you know retail comes with it you know its own problems so uh, so it's a it's a it's a really good place that we're in now. Oh, and I think too that the timing of when you started this is so uh, perfect as far as the way that the vintage market has blown up just in the past like five years. I mean, is that something you watched too? Oh, totally. I mean, I remember when I first started, you know, looking at watches, which is probably about four or five years ago now, like seriously considering them, uh, you know, you used to be able to get a Universal Genie pole router for like $400. You know, now those watches, to give you a little context, are like two to 3000 you know, like really good examples. So, uh, so yes, the market has exploded. I mean, right now I'm actually doing on, on, on the side, and it's a, it's a Theo and Harris company, but on the side, I'm doing some, you know, uh, kind of advisory work for some clients that, uh, that are really trying to get in on some of the, you know, future kind of gains and ramp ups in, in some of these micro markets. I mean, you talk about, you know, I don't want to give too many things away, but you talk about you know certain certain watches, certain Rolexes, for example, that are just so undervalued it like hurts. Uh, so it, it's not over. I mean it, it's 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 not over. Some big pops have already happened, but the uh, the the you know rise in the value of the vintage watch market really has just begun. I also think, and this came to my attention after TGV mentioned it on the Urban Gentry, is that women's vintage market is where the men's was five years ago, seemingly. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting kind of observation. I, I'm not sure. I don't know too much about the women's market. I mean, honestly, you know, myself, uh, but really much more largely the, the entire watch industry has just neglected women so much over the course of the last, you know, forever that, uh, that it's kind of painful, you know, it, it really is crazy. So it, it's possible. I mean, you know, I think that the women's, you know, eligible, you know, or the, or the, the watches that are eligible to be consumed and worn by women in mass, you know, are really on men's watches. I mean, a Rolex Datejust, which I'm wearing right now at 36 millimeters, is just a phenomenal watch for, for both men and women. Uh, so when I look at that, uh, when I look at a date just for example, and the future kind of value of it, uh, I, I definitely take that into consideration. You know, I just I just base my valuation or my my perspective evaluation on what men are going to look at it. If you add on, you know, the bet or the wager that women are going to be more interested in watches in three years, the value that I put on this Rolex is is a fraction of what it really could be. Yeah, I just picked. I don't know if my wife's gonna listen to this, but I picked up a '67 Seamaster for her on eBay, and it was like two hundred fifty dollars, and it's in great shape. It's like 
that right now there's some really good stuff out there. That's, for... a, that's a ridiculous price. You know what I mean? Like that is that is. I'm not saying it's not not a lot of money, but uh, I mean, talk about value. You know what I mean? That's just that's tremendous. Yeah, and and considering I could have gotten a movement watch for for even about the same yeah, price. <laughs> don't even get me started on those companies. I know. Oh, I know. I mean, I, I'm sure you've heard my spiel. I mean, maybe you've heard my spiel. I'm saying I'm sure it was very cocky. Uh, maybe you've heard my spiel on movement and stuff like that. I mean, these companies are so. Um, I mean, they're wonderful in the fact that congratulations. I mean, you've built just a tremendous, probably extremely profitable company with just enormous, probably market share. But oh my God, is your product so fucking bad? Holy! I mean, I just feel like it, it's just almost deceptive in nature. You know, when you know they're not lying, but they're they're basically lying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think you said you would burn your money for theirs. That was yeah. Oh, I would burn every one of my dollars for for probably half of theirs. Uh, but uh, but I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what they've done. So now looking back, this is you've been in this for I think you're you're on your second year now, right? October of fifteen is when you started in YouTube. What what do you think you would have done differently looking back, or what have you learned from this process? Jeez, oh, I mean. I, I really just I wish I mean and it's in retrospect I mean I, I wish that that first eight months of learning was condensed but who doesn't right I mean it, it kills me to think uh, how slowly we moved for the first like I said eight months of this company like it it really does hurt um, but uh, I mean there are things like like we didn't build a studio until like three months ago like what why. You know, just because, just because we, I don't know, it was a lack of foresight. Like, and, and I, and I thought three months ago that I really understood my business. You know, and that just goes to show you, like, sometimes you forget about the most obvious stuff. You know, we, we were, we were recording four or six videos a week based, and, and we, were, we were, we were, you know, basing our recording schedule on lighting. I mean, on on airplanes when they passed, we had to stop talking. Like, I was in my backyard. That's ridiculous. How did I think that was scalable at the time? And mind you, this was three months ago. I'm not even yelling at like a 19-year-old Christian. I'm yelling at like you know me two months ago. So uh, so that that's that's incredible. But you know I think that largely we've caught up now. Um, you know TNH is in a better place today, uh, like literally today, like you know <laughs> this day than it's ever been. I mean I'm super excited about it. But like everybody, you wish that a lot of that learning and growth happened a little bit sooner. Yeah, or or start now, start sooner, just get moving, fail fast. Exactly. I think, yeah, totally right. absolutely. I'm actually I've been building a studio for the past uh, few weeks. I'm actually building a second story on top of a building in my backyard. So I'll get out. That project cool. It's a whole project in itself that I'm I'm really looking forward to having that finished because my basement is not conducive anymore to uh, to all this. So yeah, yeah, but that's a really cool project you're working on. Yeah, I just I hope it also went a little bit a little bit quicker. So, so you have you seemingly have uh, the availability to get almost any watch you want. What is something like either in your collection that is like the one you'd never get rid of, or what is something on your horizon that you'd really love to have? I probably never sell anything in my collection. My collection is is not large. It's only I think one uh, only. I mean it's like five watches, uh, which is is five more than you need, I suppose. Um, but by you know, only five, four, four thousand, more than you need. Four more than you need, but uh, but by comparison to some of my clients, I mean it's it's a nothing collection. Um, but uh, but I wouldn't sell any of them. You know, my, my watches are very sentimental to me. You know, my watches, you know, each individual one means something, a different kind of milestone or point in my life, and uh, I wouldn't sell any of them. 
but uh, what is what is on the horizon? Um, I, I really, you know, I always say this, my, my grail watch is a Rolex State 8, right? And, and that's not because it's the most expensive or most, you know, uh, uh, or even best watch, not even close to the best watch I want. Probably the best watch I want is, is a Patek Philippe 3940, a virtual calendar, you know, worn by the Stern family. I mean, it's a very, very serious, uh, elegant, understated, highly complicated wristwatch. You know, the, the sizing is right, the portions are right, everything is right. Um, but... You know, it might not make any sense that I want both that and the Date 8 in the collection because they are literally the opposite of each other. You know, one is the epitome of a fine, you know, understated watchmaking, and the other is, you know, the epitome of, yes, a robust Rolex, which is great, but total bling and just, you know, garishness. Um, but I, I, for some reason, I've just always had this thing for the Date 8. You know, so if I, if I had to have one more watch before I, you know, stopped collecting, it would be uh, either a yellow or a white gold. And I probably wear it very regularly. Well, that's great. So I, I, I mean, I follow your videos and Instagram, and, and I love to see the new stuff you guys put up. You, you mentioned in one video, you said you might be around in three to five years. Like, what are you looking forward to in the next two years? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to. Uh, I mean, as far as the company, just just evangelizing more, like getting more and more and more people uh, into watches. You know, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy getting an email that says like, you know, hey, TNH team, hey, Christian, like, you know, thank you for getting me into this hobby because I really didn't have a hobby before this. And like, this is the most interesting thing that I've ever spent my time on. You know, that to me is a really rewarding message, you know, and I just want to, you know, I don't want to get more and more of those. I mean, they're nice, but really I just want to get more and more people into this hobby. Uh, I'd love to be, you know, that company. I'd love to work for that company that, that does that for people. Uh, so on, on that level, it'd be that. Of course, you know, there are other goals. You want to get, you want to get advertising just like everybody else. But, but that is, that is the real, you know, goal. Well, I think that's what will help set you apart from the other shops online or from some of the other people. I think that's that's really awesome. Well, great. Well, thank you for coming on the Button Up Podcast. Everybody can check you out, Theo and Harris, Instagram. I started to fall into the watch world, and then between you and him and, and one other the watch channels, that's what has really made me fall uh, head over. So really appreciate no, it when you come on. Happier when you reached out. I mean, this is this is totally awesome. Uh, and just you know, even if it wasn't being recorded, you know, just talking to another person about watches and about style, um, I just think it's it's really terrific. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, John. Speak soon, buddy. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of the Cavalier and Brock McGough of the Modest Man. And we will see you next week.